You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation presented by Hat and Beard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout, and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Terkel. Thanks for listening. Babbitts is having a resurgence like never before. The 1960s, 70s it girl of LA's hip underground, Babbitts began publishing books in the mid 70s. Her original voice years before metafiction helped define an era best summed up in her most accomplished work, Slow Days, Fast Company. Yet several years ago, all of Babbitts' work was out of print and Eve herself had retreated to her West Side condo living her life since then as a recluse after a freak accident in the 1990s left her with severe burns throughout her body. But thanks to the literary detective work of the writer Lillian Nolik, Eve is now being celebrated by several younger generations of women. Nolik published a seminal piece in Vanity Fair magazine several years back about Babbitts, which has since been expanded into a book-length biography of sorts entitled Hollywood's Eve, published by Scribner's. This Vanity Fair piece kicked off the unofficial second coming of Eve. Here's Lilia Nolik. So the very first piece I did for Vanity Fair was on Eve, and, you know, when you have, like, a magazine behind you, people will talk to you. I guess, like, my own feeling on those kind of womb-to-tomb biographies, kind of traditional biographies, yes, of course we need those. Um, I guess I always, I have this problem with objectivity. (laughs) I mean, I always think it's a pose. You know, why would I be moved to spend five or six years of my life on a subject that I was neutral about. Um, and I just feel like I sort of, with the Eve book, you know, I kind of copped my subjectivity from the start. Um, and I also think, by the way, like subjectivity, to me, like a cold-eyed, a cold-eyed subjectivity is what you need, I think, to write a good book. You know, I'm extremely tough on Eve. It's not like um, the fact that I love her, love her work means I'm going to be soft on her. Um, no, I liked how you kind of came out and said the novels aren't that great. And yeah, I've been reading the stuff. Failures. You know, after I after I read your book, I started going through, and I, I it's it's funny. I completely agree with you that Slow Days, Fast Company is the best. Evie, kind of with that book, created a form. You know, it was the, it allowed it allowed her to express herself. You know, to express her sensibility and her style. And I felt that when she would do those novels, um, which I think she felt kind of maybe either pressure from her kind of publishing house, but I really just think it was internal. You know, serious writers wrote novels, um, but they just kind of um, were confining for her. And I just feel like they killed what was kind of wild and original about her work, whereas Slow Day Fest Company, it's kind of short stories, it's kind of a novel. It's, it's like a hybrid. It's a hybrid, yeah. yeah and, it, and it allows her to kind of, you know, I always feel like when you're reading a, a Didion novel, like, the, um, you know, like, play it as it weighs, it's like, um, it's got that kind of laser focus. It's, um, it's the same with uh, the famous Nathaniel West, Day of the Locusts, and it's got kind of, it's unifocal, you know, and Evie's got that kind of sprawling, sensual, kind of Los Angeles thing. It's in her blood, it's who she is, and that kind of slow days fast company, it, it, she just ranges all around, you know? It's prismatic. Uh, and the book, the book, the, the, the form of the book kind of captures that too. 
there's a great quote Dave Hickey gives you where he says, you know, Eve only has one story to tell, but she tells it better than anybody else. And I feel like you're right. At a certain point, they were trying to shape her into something else that was maybe didn't ring as authentic as just her true voice. But, you know, dr you get into this in the book. Drugs played a role in that sort of disintegrating. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. And actually, I don't even want to lay it off on her, on, on Knopf, because I, I suspect it was internal. You know, like when you were talking about Tom Wolfe, and he was great, he was great, but he has this, it's some essay he wrote, I think it was probably for Esquire, where he talked about kind of how enormous um, kind of psychologically the novel loomed in the, in the minds of writers at a certain kind of period, and Evie would have been right in that period where it was this holy grail, and so I just felt to, kind of to prove to herself, to prove to everyone else that she was a serious writer, she had to write novels, and it was just, it was kind of contrary to her nature, and it didn't work, that's my own feeling on it. How much do you think her lifestyle influenced some of those books and do you think that like when she got clean that that um like it was hard to tap back into that because it was such a uh i don't know what you'd call it sort of like over the top hedonistic you know live by the seat of your pants kind of life that eventually that had to stop and and with that she kind of becomes this comes this recluse now i know there was the accident with the cigar but there was you yeah. know some time in between that as well where she was sort of off the radar as well um, how, oh, yeah. how big of a role do you think that played? Whenever you talk to her, I mean, kind of the first word she uses to describe herself is groupie, right? She'll, she'll use that word, but groupie was just a role she played, you know, and she was always inside that role and outside that role. Um, and I feel, my own feeling is that kind of the drugs and the guys and the drinking um, and just the wildness, I mean, she was really her behavior was genuinely wild and decadent behavior. Um, and she was living in wild and decadent times. I mean, it was kind of post-pill, pre-AIDS Hollywood, <laughs> right, which is pretty wild. But look, my own feeling is that she would have been behaving that way no matter what kind of decade she came of age in. You know, she's a wild person. She really is. Um, but I always felt that groupie and the drugs, that was kind of, it was her way of kind of um, um, exploring herself, exploring her times, Exploring her place, and it was her way of pushing herself to extreme to kind of ignite her imagination or her artistry. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, she was always her own topic. So the books are all memoir. The books are all autobiography. There's a hipness and a wit there. So it's not like she's just some kind of accidental um, kind of bystander. She kind of happens to wander into the frame. She was like a, a major part of all these scenes. I mean, I consider her kind of the queen of non-Hollywood Hollywood. In getting this story published, it really did lead to her resurgence and all this stuff coming back out. That must have been sort of the most gratifying thing that your writing led to, you know, maybe not the linchpin, but I'm sure that that was propelled some of it. Look, the timing kind of can't be ignored. So the piece comes out and then 10 months or a year later, um, the books get reissued. And it's funny because it's like, I always feel like I sound like an egomaniac when I say that's what started it. it but it is. I mean, and, and, but like that it kind of got the Eve ball rolling. And I always say, look, Eve's work is so good. Her story, you know, meaning her personal story is so compelling that all of this would have happened for her. No question. I mean, no question. It's just, it probably would have happened after she died. And other people had tried to do it before me. And it was people with, who had real position, you know, um, trying to kind of relaunch Eve or turn Eve into a thing because she never even... She really wasn't one when she was writing. You know, she, she, she kind of never broke through. She was always kind of a small cult. Um, but I was just so obsessive, and I really had nothing else going on. And, I mean, I chased her. It was like, it was really, 
insane. I mean, I chased her for years. I mean, I was writing her letters, all that. And when I kind of couldn't get anywhere with her, um, I made friends with her sister. I made, got very close with her cousin, um, Julian Wasser, who took the naked photo of her with um, Duchamp. I became close with Julian, several of her ex-boyfriends. I mean, I just stalked and stalked and stalked, and then finally she got curious, and she told Paul Roucher, Ed's brother, both Ed had been Eve's boyfriend first, but then Paul was kind of her serious boyfriend for about 20 or 30 years. She told um, Paul I could take her to lunch, and that's kind of what started it off, and then she would take all my phone calls. But, I mean, it, it was deranged. I mean, I just had kind of... A, professionally frustrated and all that stuff so I could be that obsessive I mean if this was happening now I never would do it and yeah and I just felt you know I, I was sure I was sure she was a genius I was sure she was undiscovered all of that kind of thing but um, I also had kind of the time and the frustration to, to do it you know what I'm saying well she says to you in the book at one point it used to be only men who liked me and now it's only girls yeah and it, it's really a, it's a funny thing because it, it, the attraction between even millennials I mean, I keep, I got asked about that a lot. I mean, it does seem like sheer perversity because if anybody is less me too than Eve, you know, I don't know who that is. And I remember Dan Wakefield, who was kind of an important boyfriend to Eve. She started writing when she was with him. Um, and he was this big writer in the 70s. He had this kind of, he was very close with Joan Didion. I remember calling Dan and we were on the phone, and this is, we'd known each other now for a couple of years because of Eve, and I told him that she was so big with young women. And he said, you mean the Me Too girls? And I said, yeah. And he said, but the only time Eve ever said Me Too uh, was when she wanted what you had, you know, when she wanted to sleep with your guy or she wanted your drugs, you know? So it's like totally counterintuitive, but somehow kind of Eve's kind of struck a chord with this generation. It's wild. Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts, and the Secret History of L.A. by Lillian Nowick, published by Scribner's, is out now in paperback. This episode's reading features Molly Lambert reading from her introduction in the latest collection of the up-until-now unpublished work by Eve, entitled I Used to Be Charming, published by the New York Review Classics series. The ideas you have about cities that you've always known don't work in L.A., once you toss those aside, you'll be much better off, she writes in My God, Eve, How Can You Live Here?, explaining the whole city in one elegant swoop. People still ask how we can stand to live in L.A., although they tend to do it months before they themselves move here and decide they invented it. Los Angeles does not have one center because it has many centers. It does not have a monoculture because it has so many cultures that coexist, and none of them require validation from East Coast Yankees. This baffles the Yankees, who are used to thinking worlds have centers and they are somehow in them. It's freeing to give up on the delusion that you matter and can control anything at all. To navigate L.A. the Eve Babbitt's way is to give yourself over to the unpredictability and slow tempo of your environment. Sure, you could complain about the heat and the freeways, or you could eat this perfect sandwich and listen to the birds sing. She tells you where to go to see what's off the beaten path and where to go if you want to see exactly the cliche Beverly Hills luxe surrealist experience you imagined L.A. would be. 
The garish architecture and people are there if you want them. Just don't go mistaking one part for the whole. The real tourist attraction in LA is not the shitty pay-for-play walk of fame or any museum or arena. It's the chance to immerse yourself in the human carnival. Around the time you make peace with being in a city that makes you feel anonymous, you come to realize that Los Angeles is a small town, just spread out, and if you stay here long enough, you will eventually keep running into the same 12 people over and over again. And that's when you move to the desert. Big Table is produced and presented by Hat and Beard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles, and is supported by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago and Los Angeles. You can learn more about their community based programs and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Big Table would not exist in the audio world without the expert skill sets, friendship, and dedication of sound designer Matea Bain and audio engineer Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Eric Gorman at Gold Diggers and Alejandro Ale Cohen at Dub Lab for early encouragement and engineering prowess. Thanks again for listening. Listening.